hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. Welcome to church. Um, for joining us in person, we're glad you could join us. Honestly, those two songs, shout out to the praise team. I think hearing everyone's voices uh, for praise has really been one of the highlights of me um, attending in-person church. But whether you're joining us locally from Portland online or from Arizona or from Alaska, we're glad you could join us uh, for church on the Sabbath as we spend some time worshiping God in the word and in praise and in song as well. Um, if you've been joining us for the past two uh, this being your third week, if you join us uh, for the past couple of weeks, you may have noticed a bit of a trend. Actually, if you've been joining us uh, since this year has kind of started, historically, our church, uh, for the most part, when it came to uh, messages and sermons that we spoke, generally operated in, like, bigger series, right? We do three-part, four-part series, and a majority of our sermons would be a part of a series. But, I don't know, something about since 2020 started, or 2021 started, and especially the past few weeks, we've had a lot of standalone messages, meaning they weren't a part of a series. Uh, this week, Pastor Chris would preach a message, and the next week wouldn't necessarily be related to the one previously. Um, but I don't know about you, but the past two messages um, that Pastor Chris spoke um, titled, it's, if you were here two weeks ago, it was, if it's okay if you're not okay, and he talked about legitimizing the pain um, and suffering that we can experience as a Christian, um, and he talked about the prayers of lament and David, and how it's okay as a Christian to not always feel okay, despite the fact that you can have faith and trust in Jesus. And last week uh, was a message on an analysis of hope, of how despite the circumstances that may be going on in our lives, we have a reason to hope as believers in Jesus. Um, and the reason and the source of our hope is very specific, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ and what he has done and who he is. Um, and if you've been following us, I, there's almost been this kind of underlying trend, and especially these past few weeks, even though they weren't necessarily a part of a series, there's something I feel like that connected those, and it's really inspired today's talk as well. And today, uh, the title of, of my message is uh, Diamond Hands, and it comes from this concept. Um, I don't know, even if you're not really into, like, the stock market or things like that, I can almost guarantee you that almost everyone has had this conversation before. You may not have said it, but I can almost guarantee you've either been a part of a conversation where this was brought up or you know someone that believes this way. Man, if I'd only bought Apple 20 years ago and held onto it until now, ugh, I would have retired. Oh my goodness, if I had just bought Amazon 20 years ago, I'd be, I'd be set for life. Goodness gracious, if I bought Tesla 10 years ago and I just you know, bought some Bitcoin and held on to it, I'd be retired by now. Chances are, even if you're not really into the stock market or that's not really an interest, you've probably heard someone say that phrase or someone express that sentiment. Man, if only, right? And there's this idea of like those people that did it, they just got lucky. There's a combination of luck and it must have been easy to hold on to such a solid company until now. Wow, like it must be nice. It must be nice and it must have been pretty easy. You know, props to you. I'm glad you're lucky like that. Um, but recently, I was um, on the internet. I, was, I read this post um, by someone, and the title of the post was this. Apple holder for 15 years. Here's why it wasn't easy. And he talked about how he bought Apple a long time ago, and he was holding on to it, um, and all the ups and downs that he faced, and that he was, you know, torn. Should I sell it? What should I do? And, like, he read all these articles about how, like, Apple's not innovating. Android's catching up. Like, this is, like... You know, the market is going to turn. And through all of this, he talked about how he still managed to hold on. And if you know someone about this, um, and the concept, the reason this uh, series is called Diamond Hands is, if you don't know, um, it's kind of an internet slang that refers to this idea of buying a stock and holding on to it no matter what. Right? And if you know someone that's done this, or if you know someone um, that has experienced this for themselves, I feel like people that have done this usually fall in two categories. On one hand, um, there's like someone that bought it a long time ago, but they just bought a little bit, a little bit of it and they just kind of forgot about it. 
Um, and that's not really the person I want to deal with. But there are people, maybe you know them, and you know, you've seen them online for sure, um, that put a lot of money into a particular stock and held onto it for a long period of time through all the ups and downs, and they really held onto it, and it paid off for them in the long run. They, they never sold, they held onto it, and now they have this insane amount of money, and they're set for life. And I was reading this, and that concept in this internet slang is called di having diamond hands, holding on to something. Um, and I was reading that, and I was reading, you know, articles and kind of interviews of people that have done this. And as a follower of Jesus, I found that to be very, very attractive. Like that idea of where do you get that crazy strong conviction from to hold on to something and cast this vision of what this company can do, of what this stock will look like 10, 15 years down the road and never sell and just hold on to it after having put like a sizable amount of money into it. And that very much intrigued me as a Christian because I feel like the past few weeks, the underlying theme of what Pastor Chris has been preaching about and what our church has kind of been talking about as a whole is this idea of what does your faith look like when times are difficult, right? Last week, Pastor Chris talked about this, this analysis of hope, right? Despite the things that are going on in this world, how can we as Christians live a life of faith and this idea of hope, hope in Jesus? And two weeks previous to that, Pastor Chris talked about this concept of it's okay to not be okay. When you're in that valley, when you're experiencing pain in your spiritual walk, what is it that you can do to continue on in the faith. And there's this underlying subtle theme that we've had for the past few weeks uh, in our messages and from the pulpit of what does it look like to live out your faith when times are uncertain, when things aren't going that way? How do you have that conviction to hold on to your faith, to hold on to your beliefs, and to live out a life that is faithful to God? What can you do? And I feel like growing up, what I was told, this idea of faith that I was told to strive for, and I don't know if you've heard this before, was you want to have a faith that can move mountains. Have a faith, and reverencing Jesus' teaching, you can, you know, you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move, throw itself in the ocean, and it'll do it. And growing up, I feel like that's a lot of what was kind of told to me. You should strive to have a faith that can move mountains, a big faith, a dynamic faith, a powerful faith. Um, but I feel like over the past few years of my life, and especially recently, um, the faith that I feel like is much more relevant and attractive to me now is not necessarily a faith that's big and dynamic and flashy, but it's a faith that, that's firm, that doesn't move, that has conviction. And it's, I feel like the, the shift for me has been, I, I don't necessarily want or need a faith that can move mountains. I want a faith that can weather the storm, a faith that when times are rough, that when things aren't going my way, I can still hold on to, knowing and have that conviction, have those diamond hands to know that in the end, that there is hope. That I, looking around, it doesn't look like there is. There's so many reasons to be discouraged and to not think it, but I know. I have that faith. There's something I can fall back on and hold on to to carry me through when the circumstances of my life deem that it may not be so. Um, today, I want to look at a story of someone that I feel like really embodies this principle and took it to the next level. And because of that, his, the results of his life were astronomical. But before we go into the word, I ask that you join me in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, as we explore this concept of, of what it means to have faith and conviction in you, Lord, last week we talked about hope, and I feel like the natural continuation of that is we have hope because we have faith in someone, in something, Lord, and I speak for myself when I say, like, there's, I would love to grow that, Father. How do I grow our faith? And as we go into your word um, and into what you've taught us and the lives of your past servants have lived, Lord, um, I ask for that conviction in our hearts, Lord. Whatever is going on in our lives, help us to put it aside and experience the rest of Sabbath and the holiness of Sabbath um, through this word, Lord. Speak to us, Father, um, and allow us and help us to listen to your word in our hearts. Praise in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, the person that I want to look at is, again, um, a very well-known story in the Bible. It's very famous. It's very uh, kind of children's ministry friendly. Um, and it's a relatively short story in the Bible. Uh, this takes place over the course of four chapters in the book of Genesis, in uh, chapters 6 through 9. And it's the story of a man named Noah. Most of us know the story, but I'll give a quick kind of spark note overview of what his life is. The story takes place just after the story of Cain and Abel. So the fall of Adam and Eve leave Dash get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Um, they have Cain and Abel. They kill, or one of them kills. There's a first, like, fratricide, first murder. And there's this, another uh, Genesis chapter 5 that kind of explains how humanity had started to fall and the wickedness that happened. And then we get to chapter 6, uh, where we're introduced to Noah. And this is the verse uh, that God talks about in, the, in God's kind of commentary on what the world was like. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. That's Genesis 6, um, 11 through 13. So we're introduced to the character of Noah by first setting the stage of what the world looked like, right? And at this point, humanity is treating each other terribly, like despite that not that much time had passed, um, since humanity was literally in fellowship with God, several generations had passed. They had fallen so far, and people were just literally just doing whatever they wanted. And because of that, God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. But, but Noah, I'm going to carry on, continue on humanity through you. I want you to build an ark, essentially a big ship. Build a big ship, um, and you are going to get in it, and I'm going to save you and preserve humanity through you. So Noah proceeds to build his ship. And if you read the story, um, God gives very specific measurements, the materials to use, how to build this ship. And he builds the ship, um, and eventually he gets in the ark along with all the land animals in the world. He gets on that ship, and he's right. It takes a while, but the rain starts to come, the flood happens, everyone is destroyed except for Noah, his family, and a bunch of animals. Um, and after some time on the ship, it eventually subs the water eventually subsides, the ark lands, Noah and his family get out, and we get our first rainbow. And that's kind of like, when you, you hear it in children's stories, like, oh, and you get the first rainbow. And the sign of the rainbow is the covenant that God makes with Noah that I will never again destroy the earth with flood. And the idea is every time you see a rainbow after it has rained, it's a reminder of that promise. And it's like, it's a very nice kind of bow to end the story of Noah, which otherwise is kind of like a dark and kind of scary story. But I feel like the reason um, the story of Noah, and especially what he did, why he was so impressive, doesn't get as much credit, is because when you actually read the story of Noah, most of this narrative is focused on the flood itself, how long it took, what it was like, how we got off the flood. And there's not that much of the story dedicated to, like, what was it like leading up to? Like, what was it like for Noah building that ark? What was it like leading up to the actual flood? What was he going through? And for the purposes of this message, I really want us to to put ourselves in Noah's shoes, because I feel like that'll give us a lot more perspective on this concept of what it looks like to have this insane superhuman level of conviction in something, despite the fact that everything around us may say otherwise. So we're not really sure how long it took Noah to build the ark. Um, scholars kind of vary. Um, they say it's probably either between 120 years to some say closer to 70 years. We're not sure exactly how long it was, but we do know two things for sure. One, it definitely wasn't an overnight thing. Like, it didn't happen over a week. It took him a long time, at least several decades, to build this ark. And we know this because, one, just the scale of this project was huge. It's an enormous ark. And on top of that, he really didn't have a lot of help. It was essentially like him and his family that was building this ark. And second, the second thing we know is this wasn't some sort of, like, 
top secret, low key operation. First of all, you couldn't really hide the fact that you're building this enormous ark. Um, he was also building it on dry land. And so because of the nature of humanity at the time, so this is before the Tower of Babel, before humanity was scattered, humans were much more localized. And so there's a high chance that as he was building this, a bunch of people were like, hey, like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Right? And so there's definitely an aspect of, you know, given who Noah was and the description that the Bible gives of Noah, he was righteous and blameless, there was definitely an aspect of, like, evangelism, right? Like, hey, hey, man, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you asked. I'm building this ark because you've been treating each other so badly that God's going to destroy us all. But if you want, you can get on this boat and we'll be saved. Right? And he's, he's sharing this message with everyone, and, and uh, Ellen G. White and Pedro and Prophets gives a little bit of extended commentary about how multitudes of people, like, oh, this was kind of a big deal, right? Like, hey, like, did you hear, like, Noah's building this? Let's go check it out. And they're watching this man dedicate his life. Like, this became his life project. He gave up on everything else, and his goal is, I just need to build this ark. I need to build this ship to save my family and whoever else wants to join, because this is what God has commanded me to do. And as he's doing this, He's essentially, you know, calling out all of humanity. Hey, guys, we have all sinned. We're all wicked. And because of that, God is going to bring this destruction. But if you repent, you can come on this boat with me. And he's building this ark and dedicating his life to it. Um, and he's, when you read the, the passage in Pedro and Prophets, it's, she, Ellen White paints this picture of there's a lot of mockery that happened. A lot of, like, what does this guy know? Like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. I don't know. I imagine, like, an equivalent of this would be, like, if someone came and, like, your friend came up to you and said, hey, I've just demolished my house. Um, and in, in place of that, I'm going to build this bunker for the apocalypse because aliens are coming. And they're going to destroy us all. And if you want, you can join me in my bunker. Like, if we heard that, most of us would be like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. This is, like, essentially the equivalent of what Noah was doing. And the reason we know it's so crazy is because up until that point, there had never been an event like this. And, and they talk about this, about... How the people that he's trying to convince and reason, hey, like, you're going to need to get on this boat. Trust me, there's going to be an insane amount of water. The people of that time, the logic of that time dictated, hey, this has never happened before, right? Sure, it's rained before, but for the floodwaters to come out of the ground, the, the streams and oceans to overflow, it's insane. It's ridiculous. It's not going to happen, Noah. And over decades of his life, he gets mocked, and he's told it's not going to happen. Is it going to happen now, Noah? Are you sure? It still hasn't happened. And he, decades, he dedicates decades of his life to build this. And through it all, he manages to succeed in finally building, um, building this ark. And once he does, I feel like the toughest part of his kind of the test of faith came here. So in the story, he builds the ark. And he finishes building the ark. And a bunch of animals get on the ship. Um, and then he and his family board the ship. But once they get on the ark and the door closes... For seven days, nothing happens. They're on that boat for seven days. Now, at this point, everyone knows, all right, Noah's done. Oh, my, and then, you know, everyone sees you can't miss the horde of animals streaming into this, into this boat. And then they know, all right, Noah and his family, they've just gone on. And I imagine, like, probably for a day or two, people were like, oh, did we, should we have gotten on that boat? I don't know. Like, maybe we should have. And a day goes by, two days, three days, ah, Never mind. He's crazy. He really, look, he got on the boat, nothing happened. And for a week, like I imagine, I, I know I would have for sure, if I was Noah in that boat, sitting there, literally, and I mean, that's essentially a floating zoo, right, with your family. After a couple of days, like how could you not have thought, like, what am I, what am I doing right now? Like, what have I done? I've dedicated decades of my life to build this 
just ship, now it's filled with animals, it smells, it's gross, and now I brought my family in with me, and nothing has happened. Like, I'm waiting for something to happen that has never happened before. He dedicated his life to an event that, had, to, to an event that was to come that had previously never happened before. And, and the author of Hebrews 11, um, Hebrews 11, if you're not familiar, is kind of like this hall of faith chapter where the author of Hebrews goes down and lists all these amazing figures of faith and what they had done. Um, and when you read what he writes, about, uh, he writes about Noah, it's very interesting. It says, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and received the righteousness that comes by faith. I'm going to read that line one more time. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. Warned him about things that had never happened before. He dedicated his life to this project, the life of his family. He experienced all, he endured all sorts of mockery and hatred and and I'm sure his family received a lot of that as well. He endured all of that. He poured his soul into an anticipation of an event that had literally in the history of humanity never happened before. And now we know will never happen again. A one-time event. He dedicated his life to this. And you have to wonder, right? Because in the end, he was, he was right. He was right. What he was believing in was the truth. That actually is what happened. And as a result of his actions, his family was saved. And in the larger scheme of things, humanity was saved. But you have to, I think it begs the question, like, what, how was he able to do that? Like, what was the source of that faith, of that conviction? Like, what, what led him to have such a strong belief in this thing? Because I think a lot of us, I think, I, maybe I speak mostly for myself. If I was in those shoes, I'd have a hard time doing that. I'd have a hard time dedicating. I don't see the logic in it, right? By every stretch of the imagination, of logic, of reasoning, by outside perspective, no one was wrong. This wasn't going to happen, and what he was doing was ludicrous, insane, and dangerous even, right? What are you, what are you, do, what are you putting your family through? But somehow, he knew and had that conviction, and at the end of the day, he was right. And so I, I feel like it's worth digging into, like, well, what kind of person was he? How did he have that sort of conviction to know that despite what everyone else was telling him, that he was in the right and that he was doing the right thing in following God? Uh, and he, I think you can get a hint from this from the beginning of the story when it introduces Noah. So this is um, the author of Genesis' introduction of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So the first two aspects, he's blameless and righteous. Those are things that you are. Um, but I feel like the, qu the question we're trying to answer is, well, what did he do that led him to have that conviction? And the description of Noah ends with, he walked faithfully with God. So he was righteous and he was blameless, but he walked faithfully with God. Other translations say he walked closely with God. And that idea of walking with God actually occurs in another section of scripture in a, in a also very kind of well-known area of scripture in Galatians chapter 5 actually. And if you know it, this is the passage where you find the fruits of the spirit. Um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and all that. And I think a lot of times when you read that passage, um, the way it's often taught, at least the way I feel like it was presented to me when I first learned about the fruits of the Spirit, um, was that these are what you're supposed to do, right? When you're a Christian, you are to be, you are to act more loving, more kind, more gracious. But when you read the actual passage, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, I'll read it to you. Um, there's actually no area of a command at all, and uh, we'll get to why that is. But it says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. 
That's the actual verse. That's the passage. But I feel like a lot of times that's been presented as something as, hey, if you're a Christian, these are a set of rules. This is how you should try to act from now on. You're to act more loving, act more patient, right? And not to say that there isn't a time and place for that. I mean, in Peter writes in 2 Peter, that make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. So there's a time and place for that. But specifically for Galatians chapter 5, for this concept of the fruits of the Spirit, it isn't really a to-do list as we may often view it as. And when you read through that passage, what you find is the command isn't to be more loving or to act more joyful, act more peaceful. The command for here occurs before and after that passage. Um, earlier on in the passage in, in verse 16, it says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then just after the list of the fruits of the Spirit, in verse 24, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying with each other. And you see this repeated pattern, both here in the fruits of the Spirit, and again in the passage of Noah. There's this added concept of what you do is the doing that he did, Noah was blameless and righteous, and he had conviction. But what he did as a follower to get to that point was he walked with God. And Paul writes here in Galatians, hey, these are the fruits, these are results of what you get. These aren't actions you try to take. This isn't the goal that you set for yourself. It's a result of walking with the Spirit, of being in step with the Spirit. And to be fair, there's probably, and you may have tried this before at some point in your life, you could probably get away with a good amount of, like, willpower. I think a lot of times what we try to do is, I'm just going to be more patient. I'm just going to act more patient, fake it till I make it. I'm just going to act more joyful and do these things. I'm just going to act like I have more confidence and faith in what's going on. Um, and to be fair, you can do it for a while, but all of us have a very finite level of willpower. And all it takes is, is one bad day, is one night of bad sleep or a rough day that you had for all that to crumble down. And I feel like a lot of what happens when we try to fake it till we make it as Christians, when we try to change our behavior um, and just act more peaceful, act more joyful, is that eventually our willpower runs out and it ends with us becoming much more bitter and much more angry and much more frustrated at the lack of progress that we make. And so this application of walking with the Spirit implies there's something that you do in order to achieve these fruits, in order to achieve that conviction that Noah had, these fruits um, that Paul talks about, you walk with the Spirit, you walk with God. Um, it implies an action, it's something that you do, and it's how you practice our faith. And a lot of times I feel like Christianity um, can become regulated or relegated to just this thought, this concept in our heads. It's a belief system. It's something that makes you feel better um, and encourages you, but like you don't really do anything about it. A lot of times you're like, I, I love the concept of Christianity, the benefits that it gives me, the idea of, of, of peace that God promises, the contentment that's supposed to come with the Christian life, um, the, the fulfillment and life satisfaction, and you know, the idea of eternal life. That sounds amazing. I would love to have those things. But a lot of times, we don't necessarily make the lifestyle choices in order to achieve those things. We, we want the conviction that Noah had. We want the fruits of the Spirit. I would love to be more loving, more kind, more faithful. I would love to be more patient. Um, but I don't know, you know, walk with the Spirit. I don't know. Walking with God, do we necessarily make those choices in our lives? And for me, I speak to myself because I have been such a big, um, I'm very guilty of this. I remember in high school, um, as just I was finishing high school and leaving to college, this was a phrase I told my friends 
every time I left SoCal to go to Michigan uh, for Andrew, so every time I was home for break, as I was leaving with a break, I told all my friends this, and I distinctly remember saying this after, as I, was, as I was about to start my freshman year of college. We're all eating and hanging out, and I told my friends, hey, um, you know, I'm going to college, and, you know, I'll be back in December, but let me be real, like, you might not recognize me when I come back. And they're like, oh, word, why? It's like, I told myself and I told all my friends, I was very open about this. I was like, I'm going to become so big in college. Like, I'm going to become yoke. Like, it's going to be insane. Like, you might not recognize me. I'm going to warn you now, right? And I told this every, I told that when I left in the fall and I came back in winter and, like, you know, obviously nothing had changed. And then in winter, as I was leaving again for my second semester, I was like, hey, guys, I know it didn't happen first time. That's because I think adjusted, whatnot. I found my bearings. When I come back in the summer, you will not recognize me. I'm going to be so big. It's crazy. And I said that every, up until I graduated college, right? Every single break, I told my friends, hey, man, this is the year. You will not recognize me. I'm going to come back and look, like, so big. And after the first time, my friends were like, oh, man, yeah, dude, that'd be great. Like, you know, college, everyone works out in college. And then, like, the seventh, eighth time, they're like, all right, never mind, forget it. You're not, this is never going to happen. And I realized, granted, there were times when I did come back, and I was bigger, but it wasn't muscle mass. It was other things. And I realized that the, the idea of, like, it was very similar to a concept of what I felt now. Like, there was, I would love to have had the idea, like, the idea of being super fit and super buff and, like, you know, being able to lift a lot was very, very, very much appealing to me. Uh, the reality was when I got to college and when I was, you know, living life, going to classes, hanging out with friends, eventually I had to change it to my gym clothes, go downstairs to the gym and, you know, consistently lift heavy things off the ground until it hurt and then do it again the next day. And the idea of that just didn't really appeal to me, to be honest. And there was a point, the closest I got, and I've shared this with some of the youth, was my senior year of college, I was really serious. My, the roommate that I was rooming with was, like, super into working out, and he was like, hey, if you want to get big, you have to bulk. Like, you need to add a lot of weight, and then you can work on it. That's how you get big. I was like, really? All right, well, like, what should I do? And he's like, you just need to eat a lot. And I was like, word? Like, just eat a lot. And, like, you know, if you don't know, on Adventist colleges, uh, the cafeteria is all vegetarian, right? So I just had an insane amount of tofu scramble and beans. And, like, that's all I ate. The problem was, and, again, this was, it was actually very difficult for me to get there. The problem was um, I did all of that. I did change my diet, and it was actually really hard, but I ate a lot. Um, I just never worked out. And so the, I, it went from bulking to just like, I just got fat. Like, that's, what, that's, that's the closest I ever got. But again, that, I was actually pretty serious every time I said it. I, you know, it's easy to not think that now. But genuinely, the idea of like, because I've heard so many of my older friends of my young went to college, and they were all like, and they got huge in college. And I was like, that looks awesome. That looks great. I would love to do that. I would love to reap the rewards, the benefits of doing that. But if I was being honest, I wasn't willing to make the lifestyle changes to make that possible. And let's be honest, in any other aspect of life, that's insane. That's crazy. Like, that's a laughable matter. Like, for you to say, ah, oh, I would love, like, I think this a lot, actually, when I think of talented musicians. I would love to play the piano like that. Love to play, ah, I mean, I don't want to practice or anything. I would love to. Man, I would love to be a doctor and go to med school. I think it's, I, don't, I don't want to study or anything, but you know, it seems really cool to me, that idea. And in any other area of life, and we have a phrase for this, that wishful thinking is by no means a way of getting any change or progress in our lives. I mean, and I heard this in a message, and I, I try to remember who the passage was, but uh, the phrase he said was, it's a little prosperity gospel in all of us. And I don't mean to offend anyone when I say that, but what he was trying to get at is a lot of times we can fall into the trap of, wanting the benefits of being a Christian without actually 
having to follow Jesus or change our lives. And as another pastor in Portland would say, um, a lot of times we want to experience the life of Jesus without living the lifestyle of Jesus. And I can say for myself, that's a lot of times the, the trap that I fall into. Man, I would love to have that conviction that Noah had. Man, how do you have those, those diamonds? How do you stay focused and convicted that this is the truth, even though everything around you seems off? I look at things that Jesus promises and the life that Jesus lived. He was so, he was so at peace. He was so peaceful. He, he was always so confident in things that were going to happen. I want some of that. But then I ask myself, what are the lifestyle changes that I'm making to make that happen? And the reality is when you read Hebrews 11, which is, and if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. Again, it's essentially a list of all these famous Old Testament, like, power figures of faith. Um, all the famous figures, they're not on that list because of what they thought. Um, they're on that list because of what their beliefs led them to do, how their beliefs changed their lives. Abraham, by faith, believed and moved his family and lived in tents in a foreign land. Abraham believed and because of his faith and because of his belief, he was willing to sacrifice his own son. Because he reasoned and said, you know what? The fact that Isaac is even alive is a result of faith and a miracle. God will take care of this. I leave this in God's hands, and that's the action that I'm taking. And a lot of times, faith isn't just a mental state, which I feel like a lot of times we relegate it to. I want to have that faith, that conviction. I want to feel confident and, con and con comforted during times of of distress and when everything around me is falling apart. But faith isn't just a mental state. It's an experience we have because of the choices that we make. And if you read through any of the, the, of the stories in the Bible, you never find anyone that just sits there and just, ah, I believe, but I'm not going to do anything about it. It starts as a mental state, and then it, 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 it embodies itself through the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, the things that we say, what we decide to do, the decisions uh, that we take in our lives. And just to ask a couple of questions, and again, um, to kind of close up, um, just some applications that I was thinking of is, when's the last time, right, when's the last time you heard a message? Um, could have been a church, could have been, you know, guest speaker or camp meeting or somewhere else. And it was so good that you, it, you made a point of letting the speaker know, hey, this was an amazing sermon. I loved it. it. It really spoke to me. And, you know, I feel like every once in a while we get those messages where it sounds like, the speaker, like, knows your life and has, like, has a lens into what you're going through. And it's like, it just hits home. When's the last time you did that? Um, and, you, and it was so good that you made a point of telling the speaker, so, hey, this is an amazing sermon. It changed me. Um, and did something about it afterwards. How did that message change your life on Sunday and on Monday and on Tuesday? Another question is, really, like, how does following Jesus, how does that affect your schedule? How does that affect the things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Because honestly, so many things affect our schedule, from work to, to family to hobbies, all these things. And we're more than happy to make room for those things. My question is, how often does your belief in Jesus change your life, change your lifestyle, change the priorities in your life, change your time allocations during the day? When you look at the passage in Galatians 5, as well as the story of Jonah, of Noah, it becomes pretty clear that this faith, this peace, this conviction that, that comes, um, that came with Noah, isn't something that he just willed himself into. It's not that when the time came, he was like, all right, I'm gonna believe now. Why? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell myself, I'm gonna fake it till I make it. That's, if you, any, if you tried any of that with any of these virtues that, that are in the, the fruits of the spirit, you know it's, it's unsustainable and it's, it's exhausting, really. And that really doesn't seem to be what Noah did. It's not that he sat there and he was like, it's hard, but oh, I'm just gonna grip my teeth and will myself through it. Um, when you look at the story of Noah, it becomes clear that his conviction in God had a history. He walked with God before this call happened. He established a relationship. He changed his life.
to follow God. And the lifestyle that he led was different from those around him. And he changed his life and his actions, what he did, the time that he took, in order to build that faith and conviction when the time came. And for those of you, uh, when you read the story of, of Noah, I honestly think one of the most powerful parts of that story, I mean, yeah, the fact that he built that flood and, and built the ark and survived the flood and all the animals, that's amazing. Personally, I think one of the most powerful parts of the story of Noah is the fact that his family was saved. I mean, so often you read stories, not only in the Bible, but in our own spiritual, our own personal lives and our own social circles of how hard it is to, I don't know if you've ever had that religion talk with, with, with family. It can be kind of awkward, especially when you have differing views. But when you read the story of Noah, obviously something he did matched up with, with his kids, with his wife, with his cousins and, and grandchildren, where they saw Noah building this ark. They saw the things he was telling people, the conviction he had, and what he did, the life that Noah lived at home, outside, matched up with the words that he was saying. And that was powerful enough conviction for his family to be like, yeah, he's onto something. For his kids to say, dad knows what he's talking about. There's truth here. There's conviction here. For his wife, for his grandkids to look at him and say, man, this, the way this guy lives his life is powerful enough and convicting enough for me to follow him into his footsteps. For those of us that want to experience change and growth in your faith and, and grow into one that can weather storms and, and in the face of, of disparity, in the face of everything around you deeming otherwise, um, on challenges of life, this is essentially what Jesus teaches, and I'll end with this passage. And you've heard this before. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet... It did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The teaching of Jesus here explicitly in his teaching in the New Testament, in Paul, in Galatians, in Noah, to having that conviction, that diamond hands, to being able to weather the storm is simply this, does your belief in God change your lifestyle? Does it affect what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you practice what you preach? Because if you do, that is the strongest and most powerful way to grow that faith and build that on the foundation of the rock. And as oxymoronic as it may sound, the truth of growing our faith is to see that it's not our faith in ourselves that increases, but a reminder of God's faithfulness to us that creates true change and growth in our assurance of hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, as we kind of dwell on this concept and look back on the stories of, of these heroes of faith like Abraham and Noah, Lord, it can be easy for us to, to fall into the trap of, of wishful thinking and, and thinking, oh, I would love to have that. And when the time comes, try to will ourselves um, into, into a spirit of faith, will ourselves into peace, will ourselves into patience and love um, and have the mental and spiritual fortitude. But the reality is, God, uh, you've taught us that that's just not how life works and that we can try for a while, but that'll really just burn us out, Lord. And the truth of the matter is the true way to grow in our relationship with you is to allow our belief and faith in you to change our lives, Lord. And Lord, it's much easier said than done, Father. So I ask that you help us in that process, Lord. You're a God that will not leave us a God of loyalty, a God of patience and mercy and compassion, Father. And so we tap into that, Lord, and we ask and we call you on that promise, knowing that you're a God that walks with us, Lord, that is patient and gracious with us, 
and will deal with us in our, in our sufferings and our hardships, Lord. You know where we are, God. And I ask that you give us that strength. Um, and for us to give us the strength to ask ourselves those tough questions that maybe, maybe there is some change that needs to happen in our lives. Lord. Maybe there are things in our schedules we need to rearrange. Maybe there are some lifestyle changes that we need to make in order to grow that faith, Lord. Just that faith and that assurance that you are who you say you are. And that we have hope and assurance in you and in Jesus. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen.